0: Listener production. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times best-selling author and award-winning journalist. He is one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance and is best known for his work on flow. Stephen says, "It's not how good you are; it's how good you want to be." In the conversation that follows, Stephen and I talk about how being in a flow state saved his life, the common traits of people who have achieved the extraordinary. And why having flow and purpose equals true happiness.
1: The best you get to feel on this planet definition of happiness is purpose and it's a high flow lifestyle where the thing that is producing flow is attached to something that is greater than yourself.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Stephen Kotler is the Executive Director of the Flow Research Collective. He's the author of 11 books, including The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, Bold, abundance and the rise of Superman. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes and has been translated into over 40 languages. In this episode, you will learn the key habits to living a happier, more enriched life. Stephen, you've done so much amazing work talking about flow and you have the Flow Research Collective, but tell us where it all began. When you were 30 years old, you were quite unwell. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I was 30 years old. I got Lyme disease and uh, spent uh, pretty much the next three years in bed. If you're unfamiliar with Lyme, it's sort of like the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. Mm. So physically, I couldn't walk across a room and mentally was the bigger problem. It was a lot worse. Uh, They call it, technical term is brain fog. It's sort of like trying to think through cotton candy. Short-term attention goes, long-term attention goes. Uh, I would hallucinate occasionally. It was a mess. I couldn't read because like, I would lose, uh, I would lose the meaning of a sentence. Start a sentence. By the time I got to the end, I would no longer what I remember what I read at the beginning. So I couldn't literally read. It was like that. And after about three years of it, uh, the doctors uh, pulled me off medicines. My stomach lining started bleeding out, and nobody knew if I was ever going to get any better. And. I was a mess and I was functional maybe five, 10% of the time. And I knew from that point on, all I really was going to be was a burden to my friends and my family. There was, I wasn't functional. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And I was pretty sure I was going to kill myself. I had, you know, booze and barbiturates in the bathroom, you know, and it was really a question of when, um, and in the middle of this, a friend of mine showed up my door. I was living in Los Angeles at the time and she demanded that I go surfing with her. And it was the most absurd request you could possibly imagine. I could barely walk. And uh, I hadn't surfed in years. And my friend wouldn't leave. I kept trying to say no, and she wouldn't leave my apartment. I wouldn't leave my apartment and kept badgering me. And after, I don't know, three, four hours of it, I was like, what, what the hell? We, will, we Let's go surfing today. I can always kill myself tomorrow. Anything to get this woman to sort of shut up. And they drove me to Sunset Beach in Los Angeles, which, if you know anything about surfing in Los Angeles, it's the wimpiest beginner wave in the world. And the waves were tiny that day and the tide was out. So you could wait till the lineup She give me a board the size of a Cadillac and bigger the board, the easier it is to surf. And I was out there maybe 10, 20 seconds and a wave came and muscle memory. And I should point out that most scientists are pretty sure that muscle memory is not a real thing, but muscle memory took over and I spun board around and I paddled a couple times and I popped up my feet and I popped up into a dimension I didn't even know existed. Time seemed to slow down. My vision felt panoramic. Uh, and I, like I could really surf. And the, the most amazing part was I just felt physically and mentally amazing. I felt alive. Wow. Like I just had felt alive in years. And that wave felt so good. I caught four more had these profound altered yeah. state of consciousness effects. And and by the end of it, uh, by the fifth wave, I was done. Like they brought me home. They put me into bed. People had to bring me food for like the next two weeks because I couldn't move. And on the day I could walk again, on the 15th day, I caught a ride from a neighbor and I went back to the beach. And wow. I did it, again. it was so compelling. Yeah. Something about it was so the altered the experience was so powerful. And for just to like feel better for like, you know, 40 minutes Mm. was just right. And so over the course of about eight months, when the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing. And I went from about 10% functional to 80% functional. And I kept throughout, I kept having these really powerful altered state experiences and sort of at the end of it, I wanted to know what the hell was going on for two reasons. One, I'm a trained as a science writer. Mm. I, you know, I'm a rational materialist. Um, And I know that surfing is not a known cure for chronic autoimmune Mm. conditions was problem A. And problem B, Lyme is only fatal. if It gets into your brain. And these really strange mystical experiences I was having, I didn't understand them. I just thought I was going crazy and that the disease had gotten into my brain. And even though I felt better, I was still dying. And I lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on with me. And what I discovered is that those states of consciousness have names. We call them flow states. It's a technical term. You may have he- referred to it as runner's high or being in the zone or being unconscious mm. or forever box or peak experience. And the lingo is sort of endless. And for a lot of different reasons that we can we can talk about as we go along, what we now know, and this is not my work, this is research that was started by Herbert Benson at Harvard. Yeah. It's been carried on by a lot of other people. It turns out flow has... Um, some very profound effects on physical health. The all the neurochemicals that underpin the state tend to boost, boost the immune system. Most importantly, when you move into the state, there's a there's a shift in your body, there's a there's a glow, a chemical called nitrous oxide. It's a gaseous signaling molecule it's everywhere in your body and everyone. And it just turns on and flushes all the stress hormones from your state. That's the big deal with Lyme disease. Lyme disease, like only any autoimmune condition, is a nervous system yes. gone haywire, right? With homeostatic organisms. And if you've been sick for that long, your body doesn't know how to reset, can't find normal. So the fact that I was going out and surfing and my body could reset, could refine normal again, mm-hmm. and the immune system was boosted, seems to be what led to my recovery. It's not just me. Herb Benson has said, that he thinks this is the same mechanism that's underneath a lot of cases of so-called spontaneous healing. Mm. So we, we think there's some biology there. None of this is really what was catching my attention though, because I came into this. I have spent my entire life, 30 years asking questions about how does the impossible become possible? Yes. That's my core research question, right? And leading into this, I had been studying a lot of different groups of people, but specifically action adventure sport athletes mm. who had, figured out in the 1990s, right, to how to extend the limit, upper limits for human performance far beyond anything anybody even thought was possible, right? More impossible feats were falling like one after after another, after another, after another. Nobody knew what was going on. And I have been trying to solve that puzzle for a while. And I very quickly figured out that the same sort of state of consciousness that seemed to help me go from subpar back to normal was helping normal people go all the way up to Superman. And trying to understand the neurobiology underneath this experience and how it impacts performance and how we can use this, me and you, in our own lives has essentially been what I've spent the rest of my life doing.
0: Wow. That's an unbelievable story. Can you explain to us what is the definition of flow? How to, for the average person out there, yeah, for
1: sure. what is flow? So I'll give you the technical definition and then I'll explain what we're talking about. Right. Um, So the technical definition is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. Mm. So that means, and psychologists did this, they ran around the world and they asked tens of thousands of people, tell me about the times in your life when you felt your best and you performed your best. And what they described is an altered state of consciousness we call flow. More specifically, flow refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption where you get so focused on the task at hand, what you're doing, everything else just seems to disappear. Mm. So uh, time dilates, which is a really fancy word for saying, it passes strangely, right? It slows down. You've got a freeze from effect, maybe even a car crash, or it speeds up more commonly. Five hours will pass by in five minutes, right? You're talking Mm. to your best friend, Mm. so lost in the conversation, and the whole afternoon disappears, and you're like, what the heck happened, Right. Same experience, just sort of different ends of the spectrum. Um, and throughout, uh, besides time dilation, you also get your sense of self vanishes, You really just get so focused on, on the moment. But more importantly, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's sort of the colloquial definition. When psychologists define flow, there are six characteristics of the state: time dilation, the vanishing of self, complete concentration in the present moment, and so forth. They measure those. You want to measure flow? You look at these six characteristics. How much of them have showed up during a given experience? That's how you do that. Neurobiologically, when scientists, when you know my colleagues and myself, when we talk about flow, we're talking about a huge shift in. Physiology and neurobiology, everything changes in the brain, the parts of the brain that are lit up, the networks that are active, the neurochemicals present, brainwaves, everything kind of really shifts and flow seems to have a very precise signature, and it's gotten to the point that we now know it's not totally validated yet, but there was some work that came out of the Carroll Institute that shows, for example your frown muscles appear to be paralyzed and flow. Really? And smile muscles are hyperactive. Yeah, not completely paralyzed, but really down-regulated. So it's a lot harder to, swat, to frown and flow, and it's a lot easier to smile and your eyes are lit up and everything else like that. That needs to be looked at again, but it showed up in a couple of studies and at the collective were a uh, we're at the front end of like a three-year research project that's going to look at that among other signals. Um, So yeah, we've gotten really precise in understanding what it is too.
0: Would you look at the times, I mean, I'm sure you've been, you're in flow majority of your life now that you know all about it, but you know, when you were just talking then, I was thinking about the times potentially that I've been in flow, would they be some of the happiest times in your life?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question and it's really interesting. Um, They would absolutely be some of the happiest times in your life, literally by definition. And let me explain what I mean. Mm. When, uh, First of all, we've known since the 70s, for example, that if you measure life satisfaction, overall well-being, meaning, and purpose, they're really heavy happiness metrics, right? Not like how do you feel right now, but how does your life feel? Um, People who score off the charts for all those metrics are always the people with the most flow in their lives, So, what's happened since then is we now, psychologists now split happiness into three possible tiers. There's happiness. How do you feel right here, right now, Mm -hmm. moment by moment? And... There isn't, by the way, a whole lot you can do at that level. Like Dan Harris has talked about 10% happier, and Mm. he's right. Like you can use mindfulness techniques. You can use gratitude techniques, reframing, positive self-thought. You can get 10% happier at that level, but not a whole lot more for a bunch of nature nurture reasons. The next level up is called enjoyment or engagement. It's literally a high-flow lifestyle. And above that, the best you get to feel on this planet definition of happiness is, a, is purpose. And it's a high flow lifestyle where the thing that is producing flow is attached to something that is greater than yourself. Mm. So, literally, we now psychologically define happiness. Two of the two parts of the definition involve flow. So, it's really kind of foundational to how we talk about happiness.
0: That's so unbelievably true. I think you know, I think about the times in my life, and especially when I found this purpose in my life to put this podcast out and be able to help so many people achieve so many different things in their life that anything I have to do with this podcast just is pure happiness for me. So that makes complete and utter sense. Stephen, you talk about four states of flow. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah.
1: So... You said earlier, for example, you said Stephen, you must be in flow all the time because because and, and the truth of the matter is, is is no, that's not possible. In fact, um, over the course of my career, especially earlier on, people used to come up to me and say, "Oh my God, dude, you got to study me. I'm in flow all the time." And I used in the beginning, I never knew what to do, and and now <laughs> the past ten years, because I'm like I'm a crank, probably. Um, I just tell people the truth, and I'm like, you know, we have a word for that. We call that schizophrenic. Literally. Um, you can't live in flow. And the reason is it's not a binary, it's not a light switch, you're not in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four-stage cycle. Mm. You have to move through each stage before you can and only and before you can enter flow again. So flow is the technically the third stage in the cycle. It's the flow starts out in a struggle phase. And the easiest way to think about this is flow is what happens when you take any skill that you've learned and you've chunked it down at all these little bits, all the millions of different things you had to get excellent at to just get into broadcast, right? Just to do Mm -hmm. this podcast flow is what happens when you can do them all individually. So well, your brain can unconsciously put them all together and now can do all of them unconsciously. Um, so you have to still gain those skills. You gain them in struggle. Struggle is at the front end of a flow state. It's the exact opposite. Flow is the best we get to feel on the planet. Struggle is awful. And literally, it's awful by design, meaning you have to struggle into frustration. You literally need the neurochemical underpinnings of frustration in the body, and you need the overload in the, in the prefrontal cortex that you get from it to be able to move into the second stage. Wow. Or the least stage. Yeah, so one of the things I, I tell people, and I think this is very true, i can give you a handful of examples, mm. but when you come to peak performance, Two things are important. One is there is nothing, as far as I can tell, in a lifetime of research in this space, when we say peak performance, we don't mean anything other than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. Evolution, flow is universal, meaning evolution shaped human beings to perform at their best via flow. Mm. It's just fundamental hardwiring. It's why everybody can get into flow, right? We're all built for it. Um, There are if-then conditions, but like we're all sort of built for flow. Um, The struggle phase is one place it tends to get very derailed for people. And the reason is the second thing about peak performance that everybody has to know is in peak performance, your emotions don't always think what you you think they mean, right? We Mm. think frustration is a sign we did something wrong. Yes. Stop. Back off. It's not actually true. Literally... So you're familiar with the fight or flight response. Mm. You've heard that term. Oh, definitely. Turns out those are actually separate responses, different parts of the brain fight, then flee mm. or, or, or freeze. And for flow to begin, you, we now believe that you have to trigger the fight response. So that frustration leads to kind of a desire to like, fight back. And then you sort of have to relax. You let go. That's stage two. And this is what, what you really want to do literally is take your mind off the problem because this is allowing the problem to go from conscious thought to subconscious thought, right? I'll give you a really simple example uh, that takes place very quickly. This is an athlete, say an American football player who the play starts, they, they're looking across the line, they're diagnosing what's going on, right? They're very much in the prefrontal cortex play starts. There's a moment of got to get there and then mm-hmm. everything's automatic, right? It's all automatic. It's been passed over. And now third stage of the flow cycle is flow itself. And then on the back end, there's a recovery phase. Flow is neurobiologically expensive to create as a state. And so there's a, there's a back end to it, and you need good sleep. You need an active recovery protocol, et cetera. So if you want to live in a high-flow lifestyle, you know, you're know you still going to struggle. It's not going to all feel mm-hmm. flowy at all. Um, in fact, that's a really common error that people make. You see this a lot um, when, uh, when people who do this work, they start getting into flow, and they think that's how life is supposed to feel. Um. And so they don't want to do anything. We call it being a bliss junkie. You don't want to do anything if it doesn't feel flowy, man. And the of the matter is literally you have to feel awful to get to flow. There's no, like, that's the biology. Isn't that so,
0: fascinating?
1: Yeah. It, again, your emotions don't mean what you think they mean. Yeah. Right? We're not, uh, it's, it's a little trickier.
0: Can you give us an example, potentially of something that uh, recently that when you have been flow, so for the everyday person who's not like a sports person, how they would know when they were actually in flow.
1: So this is what you would look for. And then I have to tell you one additional thing. Great. You want to look for total concentration in the moment on the task at hand, time dilation. So Mm. you don't notice time passing, right? Or it's passing very slowly. Your sense of self, sense of self consciousness has disappeared. But this can also be like you sit down to write that quickie email. You look up an hour later, you've written an essay and, Maybe your entire self didn't disappear, but you had to go to the bathroom and you didn't notice. You pop back in the consciousness. You're like, oh my God, I got to go to the bathroom. Yes. That happens to all of us all the time. Yeah. That's because your sense of self got dialed very far back for the concentration. Flow is also an, what is known as an autotelic experience. Autotelic is a fancy way of saying an end in itself. It means once an experience generates flow, we just love it. We will go out of our way to get more and more of it. It's a fancy way of saying it's addictive as hell. So, um, flow is, is is really extreme that way. There's a sense of control, right? As a writer, I may feel like, wow, I'm doing things with language I don't normally get to do, or you as a podcaster, wow, this interview is really like, my questions mm-hmm. are better than normal. It's really that sort of thing. Um, so you look for all those signs, but the most important thing to know is it's a spectrum. So you can be in micro flow. When like, those things show up, that's the quickie email. Like All those things happened. But it's not cosmic. It's yeah. not what it happened to me out in the waves, right? And the other end of the spectrum is what I experienced out in the waves, time slowing down and all the full spectrum. We understand the neurobiology of that too. And it's, but so those two things are important. And research shows, and this isn't my research, but it was, it's actually been done for a while. Flow is really common. It's more common at work than at home. It shows up 5% of middle managers every time there's a conversation really? at work very high flow um, Montessori learning environments, very high flow learning environments. Video games are huge Hmm. flow producers, right? And, um, you know, one of the things, by the way, when you're shouting at your kids and the kid can't get them to stop playing the video games, right? It's because when we're in flow, one of the things that happens is blood moves away from non-critical structures, including the ears. So they literally can't hear you. (laughs)
0: It's not it, always it, in flow Is that a, also when they're
1: watching the TV? Because that happens a lot no, in my family. So, TV, is, TV <laughs> is sort of like, TV is really insidious in, in yes. that it, it fakes. It's almost like a fake absorption. It's yeah. not actually real absorption. So, you need the recovery on the back end of flow, mm. right? So, we teach active recovery. You cannot use television to recover. So, people finish a day at work, they go home, they open a beer, and they sit down on TV. It's literally the exact recipe to block recovery. And it's the fast cuts in television. Your brain has to calm down. The brain always have to move into alpha, Mm. right? Which is daydreaming mode. It's the brain where it's sort of turned off. Where you and I are right now is known as beta. It's a faster moving wave. It's above alpha. It means awake and alert. So TV, most of the time the brain thinks it's an alpha, but every time there's a quick cut in television... You get a, you get a spike uh, of beta. You don't even notice, but your brain evolved to notice pattern recognition because it's how we detect motion, which is how we stop getting eaten, right? So every time that happens on TV, your brain is essentially going, there's a predator over there, predator over there," right? That's what wow. it. And so you can't recover. Television doesn't help us help us recover the way we want it to.
0: Isn't that fascinating? You know, for people that are listening, how. What is the best way to get into flow? Like listening to all this, it sounds unbelievably magical. And if I wanted to go and then try and put this in my everyday life, how do I do that?
1: So there's a lot of different ways. Um, the easy, the place to start is that flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. Yeah. Essentially, flow follows focus. So all these triggers drive attention into the present moment. They do this in a number of different ways. They'll drive neurochemicals, so dopamine and norepinephrine, which are feel-good chemicals, but they also drive focus when they're in our system. When you put them in our system together, by the way, dopamine and norepinephrine together, that's romantic love. That's literally the cocktail of romantic love. So think about when you're falling in love with somebody, mm how much attention you're paying to them right you're you're totally you're looking at their eyes you're focused on everything it does, it doesn't that's what right that's what these neurochemicals do to attention or these uh or they the triggers will lower cognitive load all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time it weighs a lot it slows you down if i remove some of it cognitively um it liberates extra attention and then you can spend that atten- that attention that energy on focus so that's what the flow triggers do and they come in two varieties individual triggers, what'll drive me into flow, what'll drive you into flow, or there are group triggers. So there's a collective shared version of flow known as group flow. This is a team performing at their best. Mm. Right? If you've ever seen a fourth quarter comeback in football, yeah. or you've, you know, gone to a rock concert and the band just comes together and the music soars and everybody drips away, right? That's group flow in action. And uh or a great brainstorming session where ideas are sort of pinged up Yes. So, um. And the triggers, the triggers vary, um, but they're and they're very simple. We like it really starts with um, complete concentration as a flow trigger. So what does that mean? Well, this research shows that if you want to maximize focus, our body evolved for ninety to one hundred and ten minutes of uninterrupted concentration. Those are those are cycles. Like REM sleep is ninety minutes long to about one hundred and ten minutes long. So are our waking focus cycles. So. We tell people, start your day with 90 to 120 minutes of uninterrupted concentration. Uninterrupted concentration, meaning practice distraction management, no cell phone, no messages, no alerts, no social media, except focus exactly on the thing that's in front of you. Um, have your conversations with your children, with your bosses, with your coworkers, you know. Uh, put signs in your door that tell people what you're doing sort of thing. So really simple, but very, very effective. They, then there are, uh, you know, let's say you start your day with your 99 and 20 minutes with of uninterrupted concentration. Um, clear goals are another flow trigger. Mm. So flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when we know what we're doing now and we know what we're doing next. So create to-do lists for your day, right? Start with your hardest task, the one that's the biggest Mm. victory, right? Work down, figure out, for example, how many things can you be excellent at a day? I can be excellent at eight to nine things in a day. Any more than that, it will never happen because one of those things I'm going to spend four hours writing my book. That's my, how my day is going to start. So everything else is diminished under that. I know because I've done the, I've watched myself over time and I've run the experiments. I can do eight or nine things in a day. That includes working out. That includes quality time my wife. Right, like whatever it is, that's my that's my limit. So that's how many things go on my clear goal list. And clear goals, when you say this, especially to Westerners, we love to hear the phrase goals, and we go, oh, what are the goals? Tell me about the goals. And that's so unimportant here. What's really important is the clarity. Your brain needs to know, what am I doing exactly right here, right now? One of the easiest ways to get over writer's block, as a writer, I Mm. teach, I train other people in writing sometimes. If you know your starts and your endings, where does it start? Where does it go to, right? With the brackets, you can fill everything else in between. You don't tend to get blocked. People get blocked where they don't know where they're starting or they're ending. There are other reasons, but that's one of the main reasons that writer's block happens. It's sort of the same thing with the brain in any situation. We are goal-directed organisms. So we love knowing, what am I doing? What am I doing next? Yeah. And you want really small steps small goals for clear goals. These are not your high, hard goals. This is not, I want to go to college, or I want to write a book, or I want to become a doctor. This is all the steps you want to do today that is going to get you into college or help you become a doctor kind of thing. Um, and start with your hardest task, right? That's what you devote your uninterrupted concentration to, and then attack it. This is the most important of flows, triggers. It's known as the challenge skills mm. balance. The idea that we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. And it's going to be uncomfortable. That sweet spot that is outside your comfort zone, right? We pay more attention to shit that scares us a little Mm. bit. So, right. You want to push outside your comfort zone. Now for peak performers, for like CEO type, type A executives, they get this wrong because they will take on huge challenges sort of for the thrill of it. And you can do that, Motivation theory says a high, hard goal, a big, huge challenge will increase motivation 11 to 25% simply by setting the goal. So you want those high, hard challenges, but what is going on to your to-do list, your clear goals list, the thing you're attacking right now, it has to be just outside your comfort zone, right? You want to stretch but not snap Mm. because if you push too hard, you basically create too much norepinephrine, too much cortisol, too much anxiety, stress, and it ends up blocking flow. So a little bit is great too much and you're you're locked out of the sweet spot so this stuff sounds really simple right what did i what have i told you to do so far focus create time focus on the task at at hand hand. know what you're doing one thing at a time (laughs) right push push yourself slightly outside your comfort zone none of this is fancy stuff and then there's a whole bunch of dopamine triggers so novelty complexity risk unpredictability Pattern recognition, all these mm. things drive dopamine to our system. So layering in all those things. So let me give you a, a, a simple example. So one of the things that happens in flow is learning and memory are massively amplified. So you said earlier, God, when I think back on my life, all these happy moments, they seem to be flow states. Why, do why does that happen? Why do you remember mm. all that? Flow is this huge neurochemical cocktail. You get five really potent neurochemicals. They all get dumped into your system at once. They do a bunch of performance enhancing stuff, a bunch of feel-good stuff, but the more important point is neurochemicals tag experiences. The more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the more tags it gets, the better chance it's going to move from short-term storage into long-term holding. So that's one of the things neurochemicals do. They're, they're tags that say important, save for later. Mm. Flow is this huge neurochemical dump. So studies by the U.S. Department of Defense found uh, learning can be amplified as much as 240 to 500% in flow, mm-hmm. massive amplification. So because flow jacks up learning and memory, I for my job, I have to read a lot of neuroscience mm. textbooks, a lot of neuroscience papers. And they're not the world's most scintillating thing. And they're kind of hard to remember. When I'm in flow, for a bunch of different reasons, all of the brain's information processing machinery gets super amplified, including learning and memory, but pattern recognition, all kinds of other stuff. So you can, it's, you can take in more information. You can learn it better. You re- if you can learn in flow, it's, it's wonderful. I simply will take my textbooks on the road. I will go to coffee shops outside my area. I will go, I like to take textbooks and go rent a cabin in the mountains somewhere very far away and just sit and look at a view I've never seen before and read textbooks. And I'll, it's very flowy for me, cranks up learning and memory. I read faster, I learn more, et cetera, et cetera. So these are just like little tiny tweaks you're making in your, in, in your life. It's not, nothing is fancy.
0: Do you think that technology has interrupted flow? You know, mobile phones, Mm. Instagram, Facebook, things like that.
1: All right, so I'm gonna. I have a slightly out of the way, weird answer to this question, but I was. I started out as a journalist, and one of the things I was covered was the drug war in America, Mm. and I covered it from all sides. I, I was interested in the psychopharmacology of psychedelics. I was interested in all aspects of it. And there was a, in the legalization movement, this is now true with marijuana, but it was true anywhere. Everybody used to talk about, uh, Everybody who was involved in that movement used to say, God, you know, if we legalize X, Y, or Z, you could sacrifice a generation. You're going to lose a generation because they're not going to know how to work around substances. And we saw something similar when alcohol was banned during prohibition in America mm. and then it was reintroduced. Right? There was an uptick in alcoholism. So it turns out with, with, with drugs and whatever, that actually didn't, isn't what happened, I think, because we had such a long time to prepare for it. But I'll tell you where it did happen is with our technology. Nobody prepared us for kind of dopamine-on-demand mm-hmm. devices. We just, no, nobody saw it coming. Nobody went, hey, man, there's not really a difference between cocaine and your smartphone. It's the same. They're both triggering huge surges in dopamine. And in fact, Robert Sapolsky at uh, Stanford, novelty, complexity, and, uh, and unpredictability are flow triggers. That's what a cell phone is. Right? When your smartphone buzzes and you don't know who's the message from or whatever, and you want to check it in your pocket, that that's novelty and uncertainty. And it's a 700% spike in dopamine. It's almost as high as cocaine. Wow. So we are literally, um, and in some cases, it can be higher than sex. So like, there's a lot of dopamine we're getting mm. from our devices, and we weren't prepared for it. On top of it, there's the research is overwhelming. We're not multitaskers. The brain is a serial processor, as you pointed out from earlier when we were talking about complete concentration in the present moment. It is built to do one task, then the next task, then the next task, and there's very little data saying we can multitask. There is something, it turns out, for a while, we didn't even believe there was such a thing as multitasking mm. from a scientific perspective. We're now starting to find out there is there are certain people who can, whose brains can sort of do it a little bit, and it does seem that you can sort of train up the skill over time, but it's it's sort of ridiculous. It's like saying, well, you could learn to run on one leg if you wanted, right? Mm. But you you can use, you can use two at any point that it might be better, but yes, I can teach you how to run on one leg and you will get better over time, but you're still racing people who are running on two legs. If that makes any sense, Mm. I tell people, try to get to your desk and your work without, producing any emotions. So don't even look at television or radio or your smartphone or the news or Facebook or whatever, because the minute you've kind of produced an emotional reaction in yourself, your brain is hijacked. You're going someplace else and it's taking away your concentration. So I was talking to... uh, What
0: time do you look at your phone?
1: I get up every day at four AM and I start writing. I probably don't check, start turning my devices on. Definitely not till eight o'clock, but usually I don't look till nine thirty or ten. So I've already worked seven, eight hours before I, I do it. Well, I, I work for four hours. And I take my dogs for a hike through the mountains. Yeah. And then I eat breakfast. And I usually tend to look at my crap after breakfast. Yeah. And by then it's nine thirty, you know, it's nine thirty in the morning. So, um, and I've been up for a while. Um, so I'm really not a slave to my device. In fact, I, it's funny. I was talking to, uh, I don't know if I should tell this story, but so I was talking to a friend of mine who works in Hollywood. Um, and uh, we were talking about Brian Grazer's name. And we were talking about, I said, who's the flowiest person in Hollywood? He started laughing. He said, you'll never believe it. And I said, okay, tell me. He said, Steven Spielberg. Really? And I said, you're right. I don't think that's what I did. I said, really? Um, and, I, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, among everything else, create he, he when he works on set, the whole time he's working in a movie, he limits the amount of information that comes to him. I do this too. When I'm writing a book, uh, the far, the deeper into a book I get, the more I limit the outside information that, that comes to me. Um, I just sort of live in that world. So what, So
0: Okay. So for example, you're writing a book and... Would you not listen? Would you not look at your phone? Like not on an average day, but you wouldn't look at your phone for periods of time. You wouldn't answer phone calls.
1: You wouldn't watch oh, yeah. TV. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, that I'm, kind of stuff. If you email me right now, the message you get says, "Hey, I'm gone for two months. I'll see you in August. I'm finishing really? two books. I what had to send a message world to world to live in." Uh, yeah, I'll turn off. Uh, you know, I I also have a big team around me. Yeah, right. There's uh, 32 people work with me at, at the collective. So mm. there's a there's a I get a lot. You know, of the people. work's going to be done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I would do this before, um, and it would drive everybody crazy. My mm. parents, my you know, I, like I would just disappear for two weeks, um, and you know, go into the mountains and write, <laughs> and you know, nobody would nobody would find me, um. But no, I think I, I think do that.
0: like, I'm just like thinking about my own life and thinking, wow, no, this is something, I mean, I couldn't do the periods of time that you do at the moment because I do have people around me that need answers. But you know, why do you, why do I need to check my phone so much? I don't, you know, and it does, it completely gets me out of flow. If I'm working on a task, I check something, then my mind goes somewhere else. I start working on something else. And then I'm completely out of flow from whatever I started my day working on.
1: I'll tell you something that I find very useful. Mm. So I like to ask questions. I ask questions often. I'll say, okay, come September, how do I want to feel mm. in September? Like, what do I want to feel like in September? What would it take? Would I, what would I have to accomplish between now and September to feel like that? Right? I'll work backwards often from starting. So I'll, I'll start my week and I'll be like, God, if it's Friday, it's Monday, right? Or it's Sunday night and I'm, it's Friday. What would it take to feel successful? Like I won my week and I'll make a li- I'll work backwards. Well, if you finish these two books and you write, you know, this chapter and you, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'll sort of work backwards. And then in the moment when I'm tempted by the cell phone distraction or the whatever, I always sort of remind myself, oh, wow, but if I don't do this, I'm going to get to feel like that. Mm. And something about it works so much better for me, the feeling. It's really hard for the brain to go. We don't tend to like to process information. Oh, if I stay on my diet, I'll be skinny. Mm. Or if I keep working every day, I'll get to the end of the... It doesn't tend to work. We have a very hard time. But if you sort of work backwards from the future sometimes, it can be very motivating. It helps me to stay focus sort of like, so every time I'm tempted by the mini hit of dopamine, I'm like, Oh no, but like, I'll get that maxi hit. If I just, you know, if I don't give in, it's useful for me.
0: With the people that you've studied that have turned the impossible into the possible, what are the traits that those people share?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so I have a book coming out in January. Uh, called the art of impossible that literally answers this question. And so there's a bunch more than sort of what I'm going to give you the answer, but I really think there seem to be three traits that distinguish kind of impossible seekers from everybody else. And they're not as strange as you possibly think. The first is um, the obvious, which is the size of the original vision. Mm. And so we just, Simply put, peak performance, doesn't matter who you are, it's always going to take everything you've got. So when my friend Peter Diamandis helped unlock the space frontier, huge impossible, right? It took just as much energy and effort to unlock the space frontier as it does to become the best dry cleaner in Sydney. Right, it doesn't like it's still going to mm. take everything you got. Right, so the size of the original vision really matters. The second thing that really matters, this is the obvious one from the conversation, is the amount of flow in the equation. Mm. Right, people who get flow, you uh, you go farther faster. So one of the things about the impossible is it seems so impossible because you're not sort of understanding the speed at which people are moving forward. And the third is what I call what would I. Termed the habit of ferocity. And it's sort of what you see is motivation is really important to all kind of all all this stuff. And and when I use the term motivation, when psychologists use the term motivation, they really mean three things. They mean drive. So intrinsic motivation, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery, blah, 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 grit. So perseverance, all those a lot of levels and goal setting. Those three things together is what they mean by motivation. When you get them all right. And you've sort of automated your lean-in instinct. I talk about this as the habit of ferocity. So one of the things you see is with people who really are good at this stuff, when challenges show up, Mm. they lean in automatically. They don't even think about leaning. It's instinctive, kind of lean into the challenge, embrace the challenge. So remember when we started this discussion, I said, hey, there's frustration. It's it's built in. It's going to happen. Most people... Bounce off that frustration, right? They, they, they slow down, right? But peak performers, it shows up and they lean and they use it as fuel and it goes farther, faster. And I I'll give you an example. I always tell people, you know, you've developed the habit of ferocity. If somebody says to you, hey man, what did you accomplish this week, this month, this year? And you start listing your accomplishments and you're shocked by the list. It just Mm. keeps coming out, right? And you're like, oh my God. And the real secret is this. Think about your day. In any given day, there are three or four or five challenges that show up and that derail you. Yes. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, right? And people with the habit of ferocity, those challenges aren't, there's no emotion involved and they don't have all the drama. They just lean in. In fact, I often, you often can tell that you've developed this habit. You've had this experience too, You go through your day, you do all your stuff, you go to sleep at night and then you wake up at two o'clock in the morning because there's a huge spike of norepinephrine because you were like something you did all day. You're suddenly like, oh, my God, I did that. Jesus Christ. Right. Like, what was I thinking? Right. And you sort of want to go back and take it back and undo it because it was like you can't believe the risk you took, that kind of thing. People who really are good at this do that all the time. They're always waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning going, I did what? And it's, you know, they're very good decision makers. So they're not, like the impulsive thing is, is a little different mm. too. There's a lot of skill and mastery, but it's, you know, it's that habit of ferocity. There's a bounce back effect, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what I, those are, the, those three traits really seem to distinguish people who have really accomplished the impossible from everybody else.
0: What's your greatest hope for society today?
1: Well, um, I always say, people always say, I like two things. I, you know, I, my greatest hope for society is if 30 years in, in, in the field of peak performance has taught me anything, it's that we are all capable so much more than we know. And the real reason is because capability is an emergent property. So we have no idea what we're good at until we start to get good at it and it unlocks a new door and unlocks a new door. Um, and, I guess more than anything else, if I were to, I'd want people to realize that about themselves and just, I've spent my life studying people who have turned the impossible into possible, Mm -hmm. right? Every field you could possibly imagine, whether it's the people who turned sci-fi ideas into sci-fi technology, if it's athletes who have, you know, accomplished amazing, doesn't matter. When none of them started out thinking they were going to be able to do that it is something that emerged over time. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I, I, I want people to realize more than ever. else.
0: What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn?
1: <laughs> so I'm laughing because I always say I'm an incredibly slow learner. I really am. Oh really? Like, I, I say, would
0: never yeah, have I, picked that. I,
1: I, I always tell people that there is nothing here. I will not eventually learn the hard way. Um, I'm very persistent, but I'm a very slow learner. Um, I think the lesson that probably took me the longest to learn, honestly, is that I could learn, Mm. believe it or not. So I was not particularly – I wasn't great at school. I wasn't great at anything until I was in my early 20s. And uh, I figured out that I'm sort of what what, (sighs) – Technical term is a macroscopic learner. If you give me a big picture, I can once I understand the big picture, you can hang as many little ornaments, details on it as you want, and I can learn really, really well. School, the Western education system works the exact opposite. They start with the parts and they go to the whole. And if you start, if you're a macroscopic learner and you start with the parts, you're never going to learn. It's not how it's literally mm-hmm. backwards, right? So I had to get to almost by the time I was out of grad school before I had read enough books that I started to have a systems level view of shit. Once I had that, it totally unlocked my ability to learn. And then it was like, okay, that's rocket science. What's next? Neuroscience. Okay. Bring it on. I like, I couldn't believe it. I was, but the hardest thing for me to learn was how to learn. And what I always tell people is this is the this is the difficulty with peak performance in general. Peak performance works like compound interest. You can actually pretty much reduce. If you're interested in peak performance, you're essentially, and we probably don't have time to do this, but you're essentially going, it's about six things you want to do on a daily basis, six things that you want to do on a weekly basis. And you have to do them every day, day after day after day, week after week after week, year after year after year. And the problem and the reason. You know, I said, capabilities an emergent property, peak performance works like compound interest. So if you start your day with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration and you push on the challenge skills sweet spot in the kind of the right point and you start your clear goals list and blah, 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 is it going to matter today? No. Is it going to matter tomorrow? No. But if you do it every day for weeks and months into years, suddenly it's really going to explode. And that, I think that was the hardest lesson for me to learn. And I think it's one of the hardest lessons for anybody to learn because learning itself is invisible. Mm. You're bad until you're better.
0: What is a life of greatness to you?
1: (sighs) I always like to tell people there's very little we know for sure, but the couple things I can guarantee you is one, we know for sure you get one shot at this life Mm. that I can prove to you. Maybe there's more, maybe there's not, but you get one shot and you know, for sure, you're going to spend a third of it at sleep. So what you do with the remaining two thirds is pretty much the only question that matters, right? That's, there's no other question. And I think if you are not kind of pushing every day on those remaining two thirds, you wait, you're wasting, you're taking up space here. I think you've got to push yourself as hard as you possibly can at every moment you possibly can. Cause we get one shot at, at, at this, at this thing. That's what I think.
0: Stephen Kotler, thank you for all the beautiful work that you have given to this world.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly. Where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to saragrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search A Life of Greatness podcast, download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.